in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and you're joining me today is another host, your other host, Maybe you're better host. I don't know. Brian Fry from Spokane, Washington. Brian, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well, Russ. How are you? I am fantastic. Uh, I, I'm fantastic because we're going to the deep south today where the tea is sweet and the movie critiques are even sweeter. Thomas Allen joining us from Biloxi, Mississippi. How are you doing, Tommy? Oh, I'm doing great. It's a little hot, but I'll take it. Better than cold. So Tommy and Brian and I all went to high school together. Tommy and I went to preschool together, and Tommy and I went to college together. So Tommy, tell the folks at home, what is it you do for a living? I am an architect. I'm originally from West Virginia, went to school in Tennessee, kept moving further and further south. After Hurricane Katrina, I came down here to rebuild the Gulf Coast, and it's where I'm going to be living for a long time to come. I married a local, and I love the culture down here. Great. So what is the last movie that you saw? It was actually Marvel Endgame. So my son got me involved in the Marvel series about five years ago, and I hadn't seen any of them. Really? And and everyone at work made fun of me. So I went out and I watched, I'm not going to say every single one, but enough to get me caught up on Inf- Infinity Wars uh, and then obviously went to go see Endgame, and I thought it was awesome. So you're hooked now? Yeah, I'm hooked. I'm hooked. I'd say I heard Spider-Man, though. What's going on with that? They, like, Sony dropped out of Marvel or something? Oh, it's a mess. Let's just hope they fix it, because it's better when Spider-Man's working with Disney and Marvel Studios than with not. Yeah, I was pretty shocked about the whole thing. Just just from a standpoint of making fans happy, it's it's never good as a... As a uh, company to tick off people who see your movies exactly so tommy what has been your favorite marvel movie that you've seen in your cramming sessions i would say infinity wars because i thought infinity wars was better than endgame brian is brian Russ, remind me was that one of your that well that was one of the ones you were down on right it's true it's it's in my it's in my bottom 25 percent or my bottom quarter however you want to phrase that <laughs> Well, I'm not going to say that I'm much of a, of a, of a Marvel critic. So all I, I think know I'm is, the outlier. I'm the outlier, not you. Yeah, all I know is I like the Thor character. He's, he's pretty awesome. He reminds me of myself. Do you like Fat Thor? Yes, Fat Thor is by far the best. <laughs> oh, Fat Thor is hilarious. Yes. So, Tommy, we've got some tougher questions now. We're going to get to know you a little better here. What is your favorite movie villain? All right, so I'm going to go off of movies because my favorite villain is Gus from Breaking Bad. Okay. That's that's good. 
Yeah. And if you all have not seen Breaking Bad, then you don't know what you're missing. I think he's just awesome. Uh, Not to mention the way he goes out was one of probably the best scenes on TV as far as I can remember. Going outside the box, we'll allow it in this case. What is the movie theater ticket you most regret purchasing? Okay, so this is is pretty funny. I'm going to say Powder. I went to go see Powder (laughs) on one of the first dates I ever went on. Not only was it a weird movie... I'm pretty sure we were both kind of just like, okay, uh, this isn't good. Oh, so you didn't like the date either? It, no, it was it was due to the movie. You know, when you're going <laughs> on a first date with someone and you go to see the weird movie Powder, I, you're not going to end up in a long term relationship. So you weren't so you weren't ready to just make out during Powder. <laughs> I'd say that that is accurate. So if you're looking for a fun time at the first date, don't take her to powder. Also, I guess that correct. Yeah, I, I, that would be in the mid '90s. I'm assuming. So uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so what is your what, uh, Fry? Actually, I'm going to kick that one to you. What is the movie ticket at a theater that you most regret purchasing? I don't. I probably don't feel the same way now. But at the time, it was Johnny Depp in uh, From Hell about Jack the Ripper. I went into that thinking it was something completely different, and it was a. I mean, I guess I shouldn't have, but I, it was just seemed to be such a grossly over-gorified film, and I, man, I thoroughly just didn't like it, and I, I still haven't given it another shot, but in retrospect, I was probably a little melodramatic about it at the time. Okay. Uh, as for me, my biggest regret in terms of a movie theater ticket was probably House of a Thousand Corpses. That's one of my biggest regrets watching on DVD. That makes you feel any better. I did not see that one in theaters. Uh, yeah, I was, I, I'm was. i a big fan of Rob Zombie as a musician. And when I heard he was making a movie and I heard it kept becoming like NC-17 and it was the hardest core movie that you'll ever see. And then he kept having to resubmit it to try and get it to where it was down to rated R. I was like, yes, I want to see what is the worst absolute possible movie you can put into a public movie theater. And then I watched it and I was pretty disappointed, A, that that's as bad as you can be. And then I just was disappointed it was a bad movie. What is a movie that you love to recommend to people that they might not know? Whether they know it or not, I'm always recommending that everybody go sees the Beverly Hills Cop series, and in particular, Beverly Hills Cop 2. I would say that Axel Foley is half of my personality. <laughs> You know what? I'm, I might allow it on this uh, it's a good one. Good choice. Time. Yeah. So uh, if I can, I can let you have one cuss word here. Like, what is your trademark line from that movie that I've heard you probably say uh, more than any other movie quote? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Axel, are you on a coffee break? Go and get that son of a bitch. He said that so many times in <laughs> studio, guys. I don't know how to tell you. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, I would say a lot of my, when I say half my personality is Axel Foley, it's a lot about uh, how he twists the system uh, and manipulates the system. He bends it, he doesn't break it. And I mean, I just love it. Love that about him, about that character. And one last question. What, what was the Spicy Brains movie that you would always quote? <laughs> what, what, what is that? Spicy Brains came from Return of the Living Dead Part 2. Now, uh, we have a movie night, or we're supposed to be doing movie nights back at uh, with the company I work for. And I've been throwing this movie out forever. There is a line in that movie that is the funniest thing in the whole world. They, 
they get this zombie head in a bag and they're carrying it around because these morons were like grave digging, stealing people's jewelry. And they were like, oh, we'll sell this skull for however much money. Well, when the zombies come back to life, the head comes back to life. And of course, you know, everybody freaks out. And this this cable guy goes and sticks a screwdriver into the head. And then they pull the head out of the bag. And it's like the, the zombie head says, get that damn screwdriver out of my head. <laughs> that, that's a deep cut. That's a deep cut. I thought you might pick that one. <laughs> Yeah, no, but that's uh that's a definite number two. So thank you for uh for reminding me. I just figured it's just not a good enough movie to recommend anybody goes and watches. Oh, why let that stop you now? That uh it reminds me of uh did you ever see Idle Hands? I have not. No. There's a line from Seth Green in Idle Hands and he's got this beer bottle shoved in his head and he's basically a zombie and he's talking about death. He's so he's like the slacker. It's in the '90s. It was like Jessica Alba's first movie, and he's sitting there on a couch and he's talking about heaven. And he's like, "I saw this light at the end of the tunnel." And everybody's like, "So what'd you do?" He's like, "Screw that! Too far." <laughs> so Tommy, what movie are we gonna do today? If you haven't heard yet, we're doing Braveheart, which is one of my personal favorites. Uh, a little twist to the podcast today. I am a descendant of Robert the Bruce. Wow, pretty cool stuff there. I don't have anybody in my family tree. I've done Ancestry.com. I've got uh, I've got some blacksmiths, some leather workers, and some people that came from Ireland and originally moved to Canada, but I don't have anybody like that in my family tree, so uh, we're just uneventful. Sounds like you put your DNA out there for... Uh... For all of the people to come find you later whenever you're, you become a criminal. I also believe that my last name being Guest comes from the fact that my, I believe my ancestor was probably a freeloader like you, me, and Dupree. Like, he just kept staying there longer and longer and longer. And it's like, who's that guy? He's the guest. He just stays here. It's like, when's he going to move out? I don't know. He's the guest. Russell's the guy on the couch in Half-Baked. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Man, that's another good movie. You'll have to do that one. But today, Braveheart. This movie comes out in 1995. It grosses $75.6 million. It places 18th in the box office that year. It comes in just behind Father the Bride Part 2, and it comes in just in front of Get Shorty. Uh, the number one movie on 1995 was Toy Story. IMDb rates Braveheart in 8.4. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes give it a 77%, and the audience score gives it an 85%. It loads up some Academy Awards. It wins Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Sound Effects Editing, Best Makeup, and uh, it was also nominated, but did not win Best Screenplay, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Makeup, and Best Original Score. And similarly, at the Golden Globes, Mel Gibson wins Best Director. Pretty impressive stuff. It also won three BAFTAs and was nominated for four more. So uh, this movie is heavily awarded. It is well-loved. Tommy, you mentioned you, you, you this is one of your favorites. When did you first see this movie, and what was it like returning to it today? Okay, I was young. Uh, I had to really think back on this, and uh, Steve Itner and I used to watch it religiously in his basement. We would watch it over and over again to the point where we could basically recite the entire movie by heart. Uh, and when I say young, I'd say before high school, or right around somewhere in junior high. 
Nice. So on video then. Yeah, yeah. And you know, to be honest, I don't know. I, I would assume he had the DVD. Then we would just watch it over and over again because, you know, you think back to, to those days, was it on VHS or was it on DVD? And to tell you the truth, I couldn't tell you. I know for a fact, I remember seeing it in a rental store, being too young and not being allowed to watch it when it first comes out because it's rated R. And I know for a fact it was two VHSs, but it fits on one DVD. Yeah. So. Right, right, right. Yeah, it was huge. It was awesome. The two-part tape. <laughs> so what, what, what did you think about when you saw it for the first time and you're young and this is a pretty violent movie. What was your takeaway at the time? Like, was this like, oh, this is awesome? I think what I really thought about that movie was that it motivated me to become something in life other than a peasant. And what I saw was Englishmen abusing their power over people who they thought were lesser than them. And, you know, you don't get a lot of this growing up in school, which they should probably teach you more of. When the wrong person gets in the power, really, really bad things can happen. Yes, absolutely. You can have bad people in power at any time in history in any place. But the English do it, like, better than everybody else, right? I mean, you got Voldemort, Henry VIII, <laughs> Prince John... Sheriff of Nottingham. I mean, I just I feel like the English really capitalize on a good villain. They do. Tommy, what was it like to come back today? Like, oh man, uh, it had been at least ten years, if not more. I would say more like fifteen. So saying, you know, I watched it religiously for two years straight, and then just kind of put it down and didn't watch it until. <laughs> Uh, recently. And to be honest, I thought it was going to be terrible. I thought it, I was like, well, you know, a movie that's 20 years old, there's no way that the graphics and everything are, are anything worth something that could have been preserved. But when I rewatched the movie and saw how good they had done the graphics, I was really surprised. Okay. So it's hold, so it hold it up. Oh yeah. Definitely held up the, the test of time. Brian, what about you? I have no earthly clue the first time I saw this movie. I would assume that it was likely on TNT or TBS or something. I don't think I saw it uncensored until much later. It is most likely that this is one of those movies I picked up from the secondhand video store in Morgantown. Okay, so, so you got to it a little bit later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was aware of it. It's one of those things like you catch a good battle scene on, on TNT or something, and you move on with what you're doing. So what was it like coming back to it now? How long had it been? Oh, I've probably watched it somewhat recently, within the last two years, more than likely. There's a character in this movie that I really, really like. I would say that there's a ton I find wrong with this movie, but in one of those ways that you just kind of pass it off as being a Mel Gibson movie. So there's some things I really enjoy, and then there's some stuff I don't. To, to add on to that, where he says he, you see a bunch of stuff that's wrong with it, when we used to watch it all the time, we would pause it and go in slow motion all the time to check. And if you look in the background of most of the fights, you can see people basically just talking with each other. They're just back there in the back of in a war scene, like shaking hands and stuff. So uh, there, there are yeah, some definitely like some humorous parts about it. Well, sorry, I was just going to say throughout this movie, it's very clear that they had literal, little to no advisory personnel and even less oversight after the fact to say, ah, we should probably edit that out and edit that out and edit that out. They just sort of left it all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and if you if you read some other reviews, you definitely get that feeling. A lot of people say that it's raw 
and uh, you know can definitely could have definitely been better. But overall, from a storyline, I think it's one of the best. For me, actually, the first time I saw this movie, Tommy might not even realize this. I watched it with Tommy. Did you know that? I did not. That's uh, that's hilarious. When was that? We were on a bus trip to Detroit. Uh, at, from the University of Tennessee, and uh, oh, so from Knoxville, Detro- De- Detroit is a very violent city. Yes, and I will <laughs> I will tell another subsequent story to go with that here in a second. But on the bus ride up, it's really early in the morning, and nobody's sleeping that well. And people have some movies, and I don't know who suggested we watch it, but someone's like, "Let's watch Braveheart," which I don't honestly think is a good bus movie. But I had never seen it before, and I was like, "Okay." never seen this movie it's really loved let's watch it and both mary and i just watched it and like it was so long it was early in the morning there's a lot of other stuff going on on a bus and i didn't really like it at all actually and uh it was a heavy movie and so i came out of there going like that movie is super overrated (laughs) and then i came back to it i had not picked it up at all since then until this week for the podcast and i have to say i think i saw it in a bad state of mind i was tired and there was a lot going on, and this is a better movie than I realized. And I've changed my opinion on it greatly. Also, I want to mention on the same Detroit field trip that Tommy happened to be on, later on in the field trip, Tommy mysteriously shows up kind of late, and he has these big sunglasses on, and he's like not talking to anybody, and he's just sitting in the back of the bus. And when I go back there and talk to him, I was like, what, what, what's going on, man? He's got like his eyes, like bloodshot, like veins. He's got a black eye. He's got a huge uh, bruised lip. And uh, I was like, oh, my gosh, what happened? He's like, Detroit is a very violent city. <laughs> and, and for those of you that don't know, that line, Detroit is a very violent city, comes from Beverly Hills Cop 1. If that doesn't make a connection right there, then I don't know what will. Oh, man. Yes, and I, I, it was like a big mystery where Tommy got, uh, got this from. Uh, do you want to tell them what actually happened? Because I think it's equally funny when you do know. Yeah, so... Me and one of my buddies, we had gone out. I think that was the night that we went out. There was like a casino or something out there, and we ended up getting just completely hammered. And we came back to the uh, to our room. We were staying in the dorm. It was, what, Detroit at Mercer or something? Mercy, yeah. Mercy, mercy. And uh, we were just screwing around, and, you know, he – we were just kind of like wrestling around and I turned around to go like tackle him. And at the same time he was doing a roundhouse, a ghost kick. And I just put my (laughs) face right into it. And he just kicked the crap out of my face. Andrew's steel toe boot. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It was like blood. But it was a good time. It was a good time. I I enjoyed it. So Tommy did not win the Kumite. (laughs) Blood sport Detroit. Yes. Well, we're going to get into this, and there will be spoilers that lie ahead for Braveheart, so please be aware there will be spoilers when we return from these messages. Ladies, please calm yourselves. This is the Scottish sensation, Sean Connery. You probably know me as 007, or as People's Magazine's 1989 Sexiest Man Alive. Honestly, they call each year, and they try and give it to me again and again, but I decline and tell them, give somebody else a chance to win it. When I'm not entertaining the ladies, I listen to my favorite podcast, The Retro Movie Roundtable. If you want to be awesome like I am, give The Retro Movie Roundtable a 5-star rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. 
tell Movie Loving Friends to listen. Like the show on Facebook. Email John and Russell at RetroMovieRoundTable at Yahoo.com. I've won many awards, but the shining moment of my career was hearing John and Russell praise my acting performances on Retro Movie Roundtable. I think you'll love the show as much as the ladies love me. All right, we're back, and as previously mentioned, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. Tommy, for those who haven't seen Braveheart since 1995, do you want to give people a refresher with what happens in Braveheart? The film starts you off young William Wallace growing up in a rural farmland of Scotland in 1280. A curious William uh, secretly follows his father and uncles to try to find some missing townsfolk, only to find them all hanged by Englishmen. For William, however, it becomes personal when his father doesn't return home after what we assume is a battle with the English. Wallace's dad's last words to him when William tries to come along for battle. I know you can fight, but it's our wits that make us men. At the funeral for his dad, a girl brings William a flower, which he will keep with him at all times as he grows older. After Wallace becomes an orphan, his uncle, Argyle Wallace, takes him in and not only teaches him how to read and write and speak multiple languages, but also how to use a sword. Years later, King Edward the Longshanks has his son and heir to the throne, Prince Edward, marry a French bride, Princess Isabel. The only problem with that plan is that the prince is gay. When King Edward calls on his son to join a military meeting to try to stop the Scottish's attempt at independence, he sends Princess Isabel instead. There she over, overhears King Edward's sick plan of prima nocte, the right of an English lord or ruler to have the first night with your newly wedded bride. After that scene, you get introduced to the Scottish nobles. So long as the noblemen are happy, there will be no uprising. That's the way the English thought. This is where you're introduced to Robert the Bruce, who is a Scottish nobleman. Then you're finally introduced to the older William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson. He is at a wedding party where he finally gets to see his childhood crush, which is the girl who gave him the flower. Wallace, therefore, will marry in secret as to not allow the English to rape his new wife. Later, an Englishman tries to rape her anyway. She then tries to fight back, but they say she is at fault for biting the Englishman on the cheek. Yeah, that makes total sense. She's put up against a pole and has her sloat thread. Because, you know, I mean, when, when you bite someone, the punishment should always be death and all. You know, what, what's the, what, what else would happen to you? You get a bad face tattoo is what Mike Tyson said when you bite somebody. <laughs> you get the face tattoo, yeah. William Wallace and a few of the townsfolk, including his childhood friend, terrorize the English fort. William Wallace is on a mission. He starts raiding nearby towns, English forts, and sacking them. When word travels back to England, Longshanks send a small army to try to capture Wallace, but Wallace is too smart. The true rebellion has begun. Robert the Bruce has a conversation with his dad about it, and he says the reason they can pass down land to the next generation is because they never had a rebellion. It is this complacency that leads to authoritarians continuing to rule at the expense of everyone else. The Scottish have thousands of people ready to fight for their freedom, but the noblemen are still skeptical. And this is where the Battle of Stirling takes place. 
While the Scottish want to go home after they see the sheer size of the English army, William Wallace makes one of the best speeches of all time. All right, fight and you may die. Run and you may live, at least a while. And dying in your bed many years from now, would you be willing to trade all those years from this year to that for one chance, just one chance to tell the English, you may take our lives, but you will never take our freedom. They end up becoming victorious after some careful tactics on William Wallace's part. The noblemen try to politicize Wallace, and he has no time nor interest in that. Wallace then invades England, sacking York, and they send Longshanks' nephew's head in a basket to Longshanks. This is when Longshanks finally realizes Wallace could potentially defeat them. So he sends the princess instead for a peace offering. Longshanks dispatched an army before he even sent the princess, knowing that even if he agreed, he would have killed William Wallace anyway. So the princess then sends her message messenger to deliver the news to Wallace so he can prepare. Wallace flees and goes back to the nobles to ask for help fighting the English. He knows another large battle is coming, and there's no way to win without their help. The nobles agree to fight with him. Robert the Bruce also agrees later to find that his dad had already agreed not to help Wallace, and so the Bruce never shows. The next battle, which is the second big battle of the movie, is the Battle of Falkirk. King Edward himself leading the English army against the Scottish rebels. Some of the nobles show up. However, right when Wallace needs him, they retreat and backstab him for property offered by the English. This is yet another epic battle that the English unfortunately win. Wallace is hit with an arrow and then retreats, but yet still rides after a few British soldiers, only to find that one of them was Robert the Bruce himself. He doesn't end up killing him. He just lays down sadly with his heart broken. Wallace survives, then starts killing off the Scottish noblemen that backstab him. Wallace later meets back with the English queen, where he impregnates her with a Scottish baby. Wallace finally goes to meet the noblemen. Robert the Bruce comes down to meet him, and when the, but, but the English soldiers come out and capture Wallace without the Bruce knowing. It was the Bruce's dad that had set them up. This is when Wallace is tried for treason, tortured, stretched by horses, has his stomach cut open and his guts pulled out, then castrated. Before he dies with his last breath, he yells, Freedom! The English chop up his body, send it out to different parts of Scotland as a message. The message only makes Robert the Bruce organize his own army to fight the British. The last scene is Robert the Bruce saying, You bled with Wallace, now bleed with me. He throws Wallace's sword in the air and proceeds to take the Scottish army against the English. History tells us that they win. So King Edward's men kill William's father and expose him death early on. And, you know, this basically sets the tone early in the plot for conflict between the Scottish and the English. Uh, as you mentioned, Tommy, this is not something I hear about really growing up very much. And what did you think uh, this movie did in terms of fact versus the fiction uh, side of this? Why is Mel Gibson criticized for not being true? Oh, okay. So the movie itself, uh, I don't believe, was ever meant to be historically factual. And Mel Gibson really made a living off of this. I mean, this is what made him famous. He would take stories that were marginally accurate and make excellent movies out of them. The story itself is out of this world. However, it's completely 
inaccurate. Robert the Bruce is actually Braveheart. It's not William Wallace. Uh, the true history of that is that they take Robert the Bruce's heart into battle in a box of some type, and that is where the the, the term Braveheart comes from. This is after the Robert. This is after Robert the Bruce dies. Braveheart is based on a 15th century Scottish poem written by a poet named Blind Harry entitled Wallace. And as far as I can tell, the writing had been cribbed off of this other writing called Bruce by John Barber. So this movie is basically a manipulated tale on top of a manipulated tale. Most of the rewritten material replaced historical events carried through by Robert the Bruce with William Wallace. Though Mel Gibson gets a lot of flack because of how historically inaccurate the film actually is, I feel it is an, an, an excellently crafted story. You have to understand that this is what Mel Gibson made a career out of. This movie was made when he was in his prime and was followed by The Patriot five years later and then Passion of the Christ before he started taking his downward spiral. Uh, I feel these movies were made to make sure no one ever forgets what happens when the wrong person gains power. They make you want to join in on a revolution because of the heinous acts that were commonplace upon people that were seen as lesser than them. It's pretty significant in today's history with a certain political uh, politician singling out an entire nationality as rapists and drug dealers. It's true. So it's true. It's Angela Merkel. She's a terrible leader. It's she's awful. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to throw that one in there. Uh, anyway, on to the movie. Brian, why don't you hit us with the cast? All right, so this has got a cast I really, really like. I'm going to give a very clipped version of this cast you because should. there really are only about 12 people that matter. Mel Gibson, of course, is William Wallace. Uh, we have uh, Sophie Marceau as Princess Isabella of France. We have Angus McFadden as Robert Bruce. We have Patrick McGugan as King Edward Longshanks. We have Catherine McCormick as Muran McCullough Wallace, his wife. Uh, Brendan Gleeson as Hamish, Peter Hanley as Prince Edward, James Cosmos Campbell, David O'Hara as Stephen of Ireland, Ian Bannon as Bruce's father, the leper, and Sean McGinty as McCulloch. McCulloch? McCulloch? We also have Brian Cox, who's probably my favorite character that's in five seconds of the movie, as Argyle and also And also Tommy Allen, who's a descendant of Robert the Bruce. All right, all right. Uh, so Mel Gibson actually initially turns down the role of William Wallace, which is uh, a bit of a surprise given that he's the director. He felt like he was too old to play the part, and to some degree he was. He wanted Jason Patrick to do the role. However, Paramount Pictures said they would only finance the film if Gibson played the lead role, so he agreed. And in 2009, he admitted that the film was heavily fictitious and claimed that the changes had been made for dramatic purposes and that he admitted that he had always felt at least a, he was at least a decade too old to play the part. What do you think, Tommy? Is Mel Gibson a little too old here? I don't know. I, I, I don't see this movie having anyone else but Mel Gibson playing in it. So he probably gives himself a hard time about it. But, you know, with the face paint and everything, yeah, it's... It, it's all historically inaccurate anyway, so why not? Good point. I don't think that anybody could have played it as well as he does, so that's my own personal opinion. Okay, that's a good point. Who would win in a fight, Brian, between William Wallace uh, from Braveheart versus Mel Gibson's character in The Patriot? Ooh, 
Uh, I'm going to go straight up the Patriot because he has firearms. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Good point. But he does a lot of work with it. He does a lot of damage with hatchets. That's true. I, I'm, I'm still going Patriot. Yeah, because like, the Patriot was the one who did the damage with the hatchet. Yeah, well, that's what I'm, well I, I'll give – I feel like we need – what was that show uh, back in the day on Spike TV where they took two warriors at different time death periods? Match. Oh, Celebrity yes. Deathmatch. No, 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 not the claymation one. They actually took oh. like a samurai versus a gladiator. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I think it was called Deadliest Warrior or something like that. But anyway, they took like two different warriors from two different time periods and pitted them against each other. So you would have like a Roman gladiator against a Japanese samurai or a Spartan soldier against, you know, a Teutonic knight. And then uh, they would go more modern and have like Hezbollah versus the IRA. So... All using Jesus. whatever weapons they use at the time. It was such an awesome show, and I'm sure it was probably about as fictitious as this movie. But as far as conjecture goes, it was a ton of fun to watch. I'm going to go with the Celebrity Deathmatch version that Tommy was saying. I, I, I can see the claymation yeah. battle here. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was great for like uh, Backstreet Boys versus NSYNC versus the Beastie Boys. Yeah. <laughs> Put them in the cage. Oh, no. That's how we do. Tommy says he can't see anybody but Mel Gibson playing it, but uh, in thinking about who to play in addition to Jason Patrick, Daniel Day-Lewis, Liam Neeson, Christopher Lambert, Jeff Bridges, and Robin Williams were actually all considerations to play the role of William Wallace. Robin Williams is a pretty short guy. I don't think he would pass for a seven-foot-tall man. Can we talk about how hilarious this movie would have been with Robin Williams? That is true. I think the whole mooning scene would be completely different with Robin Williams. (laughs) Not to mention, isn't Mel Gibson really short? I actually don't Good know. Morning, Scotland. <laughs> no, Mel Gibson's five ten, so you're right. He's certainly not. Se- he's certainly not seven foot tall, but he's taller than Robin Williams. So good point. Uh, he's six foot tall with the hair poof. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, is that not the worst mullet ever? I'll probably mention it again later in the wardrobe, but yeah, I'm gonna have to mention it right now. That is not good hair work on the costume department. If it's a bad mullet, doesn't that make it a great mullet? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I, I, I'm pretty sure they got that off of like someone was walking through Walmart and said, hmm, that's our that's our hair piece right there. Right there, guys. <laughs> Paint his face blue, that's it. Oh, there's a there's actually a have you do you understand did, have have you looked up anything about the face paint, the blue face paint? Tell us. Okay, so apparently there's some sort of religion that was around that time that would paint their face blue, but it totally disagreed with what Scott Scottish uh, people stood for. And so that they would have never painted their face blue like that. Just a side note. Good to know. Maybe they ate the wrong thing at the Willy Wonka factory. <laughs> There's a really funny the blueberries uh, smell like in, blueberries. There's a really funny section of uh, the Liam Neeson movie A-Team where uh, the pilot is making fun of Braveheart. And it's really funny. That specific part. I'll have to check that out. So Mel Gibson was on location for 105 consecutive days. It took its toll on his body. He said the film was the most physically taxing uh, shooting, uh, even more so than the uh, Lethal Weapon movies. Even doing two of them in a row, he said this was, this was harder than all of that. So uh, Mel Gibson working hard. Uh, doing director, actor, double duty. Interesting. Uh, I, I'm 
Again, I'm I'm surprised by that. You figured it was on their time, right? Like if they wanted to take a break, let them take a break. Yeah, I, I guess you know. If you're a director, how I don't know. I just like I said, I'm surprised. Well, well they did film it in Scotland, right? Uh, well, Ireland. So, Actually, a lot of it's Ireland, but uh, Ireland. Okay. Well, but, well, you could imagine they probably only had a certain time of the year that they could film, and then when the winter comes in, it's all over. You know. I don't know. But what I'm saying is like in a Jason Bourne movie, like Matt Damon's like, I had to work really hard on this. Like, and it's like, I believe it. Like the guy's like, like sprinting throughout like an enormous part of the movie. Um, am I underestimating Mel Gibson's physical demands of this movie? Cause he's like on a horse a lot. Like he's making a lot of, you know, the, the battle scenes are so ensemble. Like they're from everybody else. I'm a little surprised by that. I'm not. I, 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 I give him some credit here. Uh, it looks like it would have been, I mean, look at what they got to wear. They'd have to get all the, the, the costumes and everything exactly right. You've got tons of people in battle scenes. That's probably why there's so many background flaws is because they're probably just like, ah, eh, F it, whatever, it's good enough. Yeah, whoever they had doing history on this, uh, you probably said that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Although playing the father-son, James Cosmo and Brendan Gleeson, they're actually only seven years apart, so kind of interesting. That guy looks like he's so much more than seven years older, though. Well, people were doing a lot of young screwing back then. I guess it's, you know, maybe genetically possible. I don't know that it is, but I mean, sure, whatever. (laughs) So one of the things I saw was that Queen Isabella would have only been nine years old at the time of William Wallace's death. Yes. Yeah, she's not even necessarily a character in the William Wallace reality or the real William Wallace story. But uh, again, you've got to have a love interest. You've got to have a female character. So they're going to they're going to do that. Tommy, what would you think about Sean Connery playing the role of King Edward I? I don't know. I guess it wouldn't have been bad. King Edward I, I couldn't watch that guy in any other movie from that point forward because he was just the most evil person ever. So Sean Connery probably would have ruined his career if he would have taken that. Well, he turned down the role anyway because he was offered the role, and he did Just Cause instead in 1995. But uh, I'm with you. Is that the one where he wore the red diaper? The red diaper. I'm kidding. I'm I'm kidding. Oh. You've never seen John Sean Connery in the red diaper? No. Google it right now. Sean Connery red diaper. I will. Oh no. This is something called Zardoz from 1974. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm a little bit uh, I'm a little bit concerned by what I'm seeing here. Um, <laughs> the show must come back on track though. So. Um, <laughs> No, I, I'm, but I think Sean Connery, I don't want to see him be a villain like that, so I'm glad he turned it down. Exactly. I, I totally agree. And then up to 1,600 extras are used for the battle scenes, uh, most of which were members of the FCA, of the Reserve of the Irish Army, and the men got carried away, and in some instances were actually quite rough on each other. Yeah, but yet you think that it wouldn't have been taxing on old Mel Gibson. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, Brian, this is where we, let's let's start with you here. Fact versus fiction on this one. Does it matter to you? Because there's a lot of, there's a long list of laundry items that say this is not historically accurate. Do you care? Let's start with that. I think there was one point in time where I cared. I really use, like I said, I I cherry pick a lot in this movie. I'll watch portions of it a lot, and then I will not watch portions of it on purpose. I'll put it to you this way. 
there is a point in time in the movie, and it's usually right around the sacking of York. If I have anything else to do, that's usually where I'll just stop it. Huh. It, like, I've, I've gotten what I needed out of it at that point. You, uh, you don't like when they send the head to Longshanks? Uh, I'm not saying... Best, that's one of the best I'm not parts. saying there aren't specific scenes, but you've got to cut through a lot of BS to get to that part. Yeah, I'll even yeah, say I that I will typically start the movie when he goes to get revenge for his wife. That's interesting like, that you I'll say that, Brian, because skip. I feel like the last third of this movie, I'm not saying it's too long, but there's something that doesn't feel like it's... It, it, maybe it's just the fact that things aren't going in the positive direction anymore. But I, I'm with you to some degree. Like, And this is one of the things that I noticed the first time I watched the movie, but even still, and I've come around to it a lot now, but something about that third act or that last hour of the three-hour movie, can you help me pinpoint what it is? Well, I, I think for me, because I, I, at this point, obviously, I watch most movies for enjoyment. Um, I rewatch this one out of necessity, but this is a movie I still watch for enjoyment. There's no reason to watch the Debbie Downer parts. So if I'm like, hey, I want to watch this part in Braveheart, the part I want to watch is still like an hour and a half long. It's just the fun part. This so, has a, this movie has a very clearly defined fun part, and that part I can watch on repeat. The rest of it, meh. Unless I'm really intentionally sitting down, I'm going to watch this whole movie right now. I don't need it. Tommy, how does that sit with you? I mean, I guess I can see how Brian feels that way because there certainly is like, you know, when they start getting into the gore, you know, that's that's when I even said in the summary, this is uh, it took an hour to get there, though. It takes an hour to get to the point where they slit the throat of the uh, the English Lord after he had killed William Wallace's bride. Uh, and at that point, though, the movie turns into an awesome movie. So, yeah, I can see how people could probably see the beginning of it being pretty boring and then the end being really disappointing. But well, know. I'm in no way, shape or form telling people, guys, just watch it from here to here. If you've never seen this movie, watch the whole movie. I'm just saying that. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Tommy, uh, Tommy, let me put it to you this way, because I've done this. Have you ever just. YouTubed Braveheart Battle of Sterling. No, I like, have just, not. Just to watch a clip. Okay. Like every once in a while, I'm like, I feel like watching a cool battle scene. So I'll type in William Wa- or uh, Braveheart Battle of Sterling, and I'll just watch that battle on YouTube. Just going like, hmm, good medieval fighting. Okay. It's it's not. It's definitely it, it that that scene was the standard. I mean, after they made the Battle of Sterling in this movie. Every other movie had to live up to that, and it was impossible. You couldn't watch other fight movies after you watched The Battle of Sterling because The Battle of Sterling was done so well. You know, from its time period and what you were getting out of The Battle of Sterling, yes, I agree. It was just hands down awesome. Anybody who likes this type of movie, so period piece, warring armies, you want and crave that large battle sequence. Uh, you've got this one. You've got the the scene in the beginning of Gladiator. There are so many. There's a huge one in Kingdom of Heaven. There are actually a couple of them Patriot. in Kingdom of Heaven. But one in the yeah, Patriot. Patriot. You want to see these massive clashing armies. Gettysburg is a great one. And Gettysburg's another movie that's super long, and I definitely cherry-pick that one too. It's two discs. 
I will usually just watch the first disc, and it ends it right after, or right before Pickett's Charge. Pickett's Charge is a great thing in terms of cinematic. They got all kinds of Civil War reenactors to take part in it, but I'm kind of done at that point. So it's interesting. This movie is hailed often as like a man's man movie or like a dude's movie, you know, like, uh, you know, something that you would watch along the lines of Rambo or Die Hard or like, and obviously there's a lot of heavy content in here. And I've always been surprised that it fits into that. And basically what you're describing, Brian, is I think kind of an interesting situation where people will look beyond the heavy moments, the heavy ending, the romance. And I don't think this starts that slow. I think it does set up a, a revenge trip. But I do think that what you're picking up on is what why this movie, I think, has such avid fans and like why people put this poster up on the wall. I think it's the battle scenes that really stand out for them, particularly the Battle of Sterling. Am, am I wrong, Tommy? Is it the battles that made this popular at the time? Maybe, but the story itself was awesome. And that's what I keep getting back to. And that's why after, you know, researching and, and learning that, how inaccurate historically it is i'm not bothered by that because mel gibson made a great story out of it and that's what a movie should be you know you're making a movie you're not making a history lesson here that's a great point mel gibson actually said it wasn't necessarily authentic and in some stuff that i read about the film he wasn't as nice as he was on the film, meaning William Wallace wasn't really that nice of a guy. We romanticized the character a bit. That's the language of film. You have to make it cinematically acceptable. Actually, he was a monster. He always smelled of smoke because he was always burning people's villages down. He was like that, what Vikings call a berserker. But we kind of shifted the balance a bit because somebody's got to be the good guy in the movie. Somebody's got to be the bad guy. Every story has its own point of view, and that was our bias. Now they did. They did have one scene. They did have one scene where he burned some people alive. So they threw that in there after they sacked York before the battle. Well, the people he the people he burned in that scene were all assassins. It's not like he was just burning people's home. Yes, he closed the doors and burned the house down. Actually, one of the worst bios that I ever read was about the Swamp Fox, which is who his character is loosely based on for the Patriot. Oh, okay, no, Patriot. Like, you want to talk yeah, yeah. talk about a bad guy that they've somehow, like, even the British, like, British people were pissed off at that movie because of who that guy really was. Some major points of contention, though, that Mel Gibson is undergoing, though, are, are the fact that William Wallace was actually a landowner. Uh, he was a minor knight in real life, so he's portrayed here as a poor villager. That's quite a bit of a difference. It's far more romantic to see that. I actually kind of like that change in the movie. Uh, his relationship with Queen Isabella would have not worked out. Uh, she would have been around five years old at the time of his death. The anarchistic garments and traditionalist stuff, such as the kilts, the face painting and battle tactics, as Tommy mentioned earlier, none of this stuff would have been appropriate for the Scots at this point in time. So, Even the bagpipes were wrong. I guess and what I'm saying is I'm okay with it. I don't think that they put this up there and said, based on a true story at the beginning, did they? Because I think that it's okay to have... This is historical fiction. Yes. This is very, very, very historical fiction. But I'm okay with that. I'm perfectly fine with it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did they ever come out and say, like, this is really accurate, this is what really happened? I'm not sure. I don't think they ever did. Right. So I'm going to give them a lot more leeway than if they did. I mean, we just got done doing a podcast on Bloodsport, and they said based on a true story in that, and then years later, 
much of what that movie's based on is refuted heavily. Who's to say? I mean, lawsuits ensue and stuff like that. But this movie admits... I mean, if you get into it, William Wallace is a legend. It's like hearing about John Henry or Davy Crockett. The legend of the man has grown so large, it's a little bit hard to decipher out fact from fiction. And I'm not saying that they didn't try hard, but I'm okay with that. I want to watch a good movie. Right. Well, to add to that, though, you got to understand that this movie was based on a tale based on a tale. So the the movie itself was based off of Blind Harry's Wallace, which was written 165 years after he died, after William Wallace died. This guy worked for, like, King James or something. Basically, the poem itself wasn't factual either. Based off of a poem that's not factual, you wouldn't think that the movie would somehow be factual. Right. And there's a lot of small differences in here. William Wallace's real life's name was Marion, but they didn't want to compare it to the Robin Hood character, so they changed it to Murrin. The Prime Noctis, which was a horrible policy where they had the right to have sex with a common man's bride on their wedding night. This was never in the history used in, in Britain or Ireland. Uh, it was used in the mainland of Europe, like particularly France at some points, but not part of the story at all. And uh, Scotland had only been occupied by England for a year prior to Wallace's rebellion. So they give you the idea that they've been held in tyranny for centuries or for far longer in this movie. Right. And that's not the case. It was, they had just gotten control of it when they pushed back, which is a lot easier to imagine. It's harder to control an area that you just took over. Similarly, the Prince of Wales, or the future King Edward II, who they made much older for the film, he would have been a kid at the time, and then also, he, there's no documentation of him being a homosexual. So, uh, it, the, the list does go on and on and on. Again, Princess Isabella did not set foot in England until 1308. She could not have been in England to warn Wallace about the upcoming battle of Falkirk. It's a really interesting thing. If you study the actual William Wallace, the character, he kind of is a failed war hero. He has a big, big victory at the Battle of Sterling. He is a tactical genius, so to speak. And they use, they are vastly outnumbered. He wins a major battle. And that part is true. But the problem is he does, again, push forward and fail, as this movie does show. That part's accurate. But what they're not showing here is instead of going and going after the ba- the noblesmen who like turn their backs on him, he tries to kind of go into the diplomacy side. He becomes more of a politician, and he doesn't have a lot of success there. And ultimately, in the end, he is still holds true as his role as a nationalist. He's going to stand up for the Scottish, and he stands for one thing only, and that's to get rid of the British. And uh, he is disemboweled. You know, that part is that part is true. But the road to get there is far less dramatic. So that whole last third of the story that Brian is not as big on, none of that's there. And I do find myself wondering, would you want to see a real William Wallace movie, Tommy? Yeah, I think it would be great. Somebody needs to make one. What do you say, Brian? Are you are you satisfied with the historical fiction of Braveheart? Or would you also like to just get a, a an attempt at a more accurate William Wallace story? I mean, this is this is my change one thing. I would have liked to have seen this movie put a little bit more attention to detail. Uh, the actual Battle of Sterling, they won it for a couple of different reasons, one of which is they had to funnel the British Army across a bridge. I feel like that would have made a more convincing battle sequence than what they actually did. Now, maybe... It would have been too hard back then. I don't know. But I would love to see yeah, this where, movie done. I don't think you would lose much by trying to add a little a- accuracy to it. And honestly, 
you don't need the love scene. That is in no way, shape, or form. Like, that is probably 45 minutes you can cut from this movie, and it's 45 minutes I don't typically watch anyway. <laughs> Wallace in real life actually almost had a second major tactical victory. I believe Falkirk is the one where they fail, right? And in that, they're burning crops and running away from them, and they're making the actual English chase them into other territory, and they're starving them, they're depleting them, and it's actually going really well, and they decide to take a stand at a particularly inopportune moment, and the British have these longbows, and the longbow basically ends up cutting them up from and they're all their forces and depleting. This is where William Wallace kind of goes back home with this tail tucked between his legs and being defeated. He had a pretty good strategy. He just was technologically outdone by the English army. So he really was a smart military tactician. And that's not something this movie, they, they do point it out, but I think that's, that's part of the real William Wallace's, I guess that that's the really cool part of him. And again, like Brian said, I want to see the bridge battle. I want to see them burning crops and running. I mean, when you hear the real accounts of the stories and how they actually use the land, like we're going to make them run through the swamp and they're going to be easy pickings through here. Like they knew the land because they had the home field advantage in Scotland. That's really cool. And I wish they had taken that advantage of that in this movie. Yeah, that that would have been really, really sweet to see. Like where they uh, basically lured them across the bridge, let them get however many people, you know, basically half the army across the bridge, just enough for them to be able to go and pick off each one of them. Oh, I was just going to say, and for anybody who wants to see something that might be a little bit more succinct, I don't know what its historical relevance is or not, but uh, definitely recommend Chris Pine's The Outlaw King on Netflix, uh, where he portrays Robert the Bruce. I think one of the the key factors in... uh, the difference between this and Braveheart is Bruce's rebellion was actually prompted by the public display of Wallace's dead body, not because he did it, but because he was a fellow Scottish noble and was enraged by it. Yes. I think that it's also worth mentioning the real William Wallace, as Mel Gibson mentioned, was not that nice a guy. There were talks about plundering, raping, and making like making townspeople like women and children sing for them songs like Scottish songs for them standing there in the naked in the cold night. I mean, pretty barbaric, not nice thing. So when Mel Gibson said this guy's not nice, that is a gross understatement. Hashtag war as hell. Tommy, what do you think about Mel Gibson as a director, though? This is his second movie. The first one that he did was The Man Without a Face, but this is his second movie and the director's seat. Is he a good director? Well, yeah. I mean... Oscar winner. (laughs) Yeah, you know, you've got this. Did he direct The Patriot? No, no. He he directed, his his directing credits are actually pretty slim. It's The Man Without a Face, Braveheart, Passion of the Christ, Apocalypto, and Hacksaw Ridge. Those are his movies that he's directed. Uh, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's not a resume to write home like about. <laughs> Braveheart was good, okay? We'll put it, at, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Okay, okay. Putting it gently, I like that. I think that Mel Gibson doesn't show a lot of restraint. Apparently, this movie would have been up to four hours long, and they had to work it down to three. So, I, I my one of the issues I had when I first watched this, and I had a little more tolerance for it this time because I was studying it in a different way, and again, I was comparing it and learning about the history and finding out the real story and all that stuff, which is always neat for me. But I thought this movie probably could have been more succinct, as Brian had mentioned. I, I actually admit that I liked how when they took over York, there was just a scene where they were like ramsacking the, the gates. And I was just like, oh, man, I don't know that I want another like 20 minute long battle here. I just got done with one and they kind of 
cut it really short. I wish that they had thought more carefully about that. The battle where they lose, it just goes on forever. The Battle of Falkirk, that is, I think. But it's it's long within good reason. Would you want to cut this down at all? Yeah, long long within good reason. Uh, I'm I'm kind of with Brian on this one. The parts that could have been cut out are the boring ones. Uh, I wouldn't have ever cut any of the awesome fight scenes because they were so good. I mean, I know you were you were mentioning the Battle of York, but I mean, when they show them like battling or you know ramming the gate with all the, the arrows that with, I guess, was like oil on them or something, tar or something. They'd light them on fire. Then they lit the whole entire battering ram on fire, and then it lit up the entire gate. I mean, it, it, I thought it was a great scene. Let me go a different direction with you guys. That, that way I'm not, not sounding like, you know, I think that if you wanted to go with a more historically accurate movie that's the exact same length, what I'd want more of is the entire montage that they did of him building his army before Sterling, where it's just like a little snippet of victories and stuff of them attacking outposts and stuff like that. Give me more him being diplomatic and building his army. Give me more uh, soldiers meeting up with one another for common reason. Give me more of him amassing the popularity and actually creating they have that scene at Sterling where he's like, you can't be William Wallace. You're not seven feet tall. And give me where he made those stories up, you know, where, where these stories started and drop the love sequence. You can give me background on why Edward sucks without having to tie it in with this girl. That's also in love with him. Yes. In fact, every female, every female in this movie is completely fictitious. There's no historical evidence of, about his first wife there's nothing about this woman like you can leave all that out and it's a better movie for it they're not going to make a movie like that in hollywood at least not at this point not not in the 90s at this point like that there's going to be a love story i mean it's just part of going through the hollywood hoops the saying you don't need it okay how, how many how many women do you think that 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 was the crux of why they went to see that movie or why they still watch that movie i don't know but i don't if you make a movie with all dudes in it, I think women are far less compelled to see it. Whereas if you make him driven by rage of a woman that he loves, there's a romantic sense that can have a broader appeal than just like, yes, battles, yes, blood, cut them up. Yeah, there's a there's a rule I'm not in, in music where if you get the ladies to like the song, then the guys will follow the ladies, so... True. One of the rough cuts from this film actually initially contained far more violence than even this movie has. It actually got slapped with the NC-17 rating, much like I talked about with Rob Zombie earlier. So he had to get this one back down to the R rating movie. And in this case, Mel Gibson's movie is much better than Rob Zombie's movie. So uh, worked it back down to an R rated movie. So this is about as graphic as you're going to get for this point in time. So pretty brutal. Blood splattering on the camera in certain scenes. Uh, arrows impaling people. They don't hold back, do they, Tommy? Not at all. What's really nice is when they shoot William Wallace's friend's dad in one of the very beginning scenes when they're when they're taking over the uh, the first fort, and they shoot him in the in the uh, chest with an arrow, and his son tries to pull it all out, and he's like, "Ah, you idiot boy!" and slaps him, and then he just snaps the arrow off, and then goes on his business. It's it's pretty badass. The William Wallace disembowelment was actually part of this movie from when it was slapped at that NC-17. They wanted to show in graphic detail him being disemboweled, but they cut this, and then they shot it out of frame 
because they got a negative test audience reaction. Brian, you talked about this being a downer at the end of the movie. Do you want to see the disembowelment at the end of the movie to make it more of a downer? I think at that point, I don't really care what they do visually on it. Although I will say that's probably uh, one of the problems I had with the movie From Hell. I don't really need to see intestines a whole lot. I mean, it, I, it's not that I have a problem with it. It's just what what does that really add versus what does it really mean for the movie? And in this one, I would actually say that that would have been more pertinent because they really did give William Wallace one of the most horrific deaths that you could give a person. They hung him, but kept him alive. Then they drowned, then they disemboweled him. Then they set his bowels on fire. Then they dismembered him, and then they put the pieces of his body on display around England. It's brutal stuff, man. Basically, if this had happened in Egypt, they'd be making the mummy movies about him. That's (laughs) good point. They're splitting them up like Horcruxes in Harry Potter. Exactly. Tommy, this movie takes place in 1280. King Edward Longshanks invades and conquers Scotland the following, and then it ends by the uh, the battle long after Wallace's death there in 1314, uh, where the Scottish pull push together and then push the English out of Scotland. Do you like this part of history, the late 1200s, early 1300s, medieval kind of a vibe? Is this a time period that you're interested in? Yeah, for sure. I mean, anything in the medieval era sparks my interest uh not to mention the whole robert the bruce situation i think that as far you have to have pieces of history that are interesting to make a movie about and this was certainly one of them this was a definite part of time that not only was awesome battles going on you also had people uh that you could write really great stories about which is what they did you know 100 years afterwards they were writing stories about this time period brian what do you think about the middle ages depicted here i think it's super fascinating everything about the dark ages medieval times i think it's it's a great piece of history to study and enjoy or we kind of grew up hearing a lot about like the english versus the french in a lot of different ways one of the, the, the funny historical inaccuracies of this movie to me was they're all speaking English and the queen or the, the soon-to-be queen is speaking French. Edward Longshanks was, uh, and I always screw up how you pronounce this, but it's a plant, Plantagenet. Uh, it's, it's a French house that basically ruled England up until Richard III. So it's, <laughs> they were French. <laughs> so it wasn't that weird of a thing. And I don't know, it just, there, there were just little things about this that, that fell into those categories that being someone who enjoys reading about the Middle Ages and stuff like that in medieval times, it's a weird, weird movie to give your willing suspension of disbelief to. For me, the Middle Ages is one of those time periods that I used to love in history class growing up. It's one of those things where, as I've gotten older, I, I actually have cooled on the Middle Ages in a way that civilization beforehand was actually better. It's weird, like the Middle Ages like regresses. I would much rather live. In oh like, yeah. I would much rather live in like ancient Rome or like <laughs> ancient Greece than to have lived through the Middle Ages. It actually seems like a really crappy time to be alive in history. And I think the romantic nature of castles and noblesmen, and I really do like the part of it I do come back to and I like about this movie, though, is the warfare. I do like swords and archers and battering rams and catapults, and that stuff's really neat to me. But when the more and more you stop and think about it, 
I'm not sure if I could hop in a time machine. I'm not sure I want to go back to the Middle Ages. I'm a little afraid that I might get stuck there. <laughs> yeah, there was some a lot of diseases and just crazy stuff going on, and I agree with that. You know, when when Rome fell, I you know a lot of their technology just got burned and erased from from history, and you wonder how far along we'd be right now if that would have never happened. So one thing that I think is also interesting is the cinematography in this movie is murky. Uh, the weather does not cooperate with them, in fairness to them. They just couldn't find times to shoot where it wasn't raining. I mean, most of this movie is shot in Ireland and Scotland, and a lot of beautiful places, by the way. But it doesn't strike me as a cinematic masterpiece, and yet it won the best cinematography at the Oscars that year. And again, Gibson won Best Director. And I find myself questioning some of these selections i think it was just people were head over heels over the intensity of the battles and i think the story is interesting as tommy mentioned but i can't honestly say does this strike you as a cinematic masterpiece brian i'm gonna go with a soft no on this one it's definitely a movie of epic scale and it does a lot of things right but i also think that when i really turned a skeptical eye on it there's a lot of things that you're just like, okay, and then there was that, and then there was that. So I'm going to go with yes, but. But. No, I mean, that, that my answer is yes, but. Okay. Dot, Sorry. dot, dot, fill in the blank with whatever you'd like. Okay. Yeah. Because there's I, enough. I, I later, later on when we get into it, when I was looking for my best shot, I feel like the cinematography award for this comes from the landscapes. And I mean, the, there are some beautiful, beautiful places that they shoot. You know, London, Edinburgh, Battle of Stirling and Battle of Fairkirk, like all these Scottish stories. Uh, ironically, or this is shot largely in Ireland, which I'm sure makes people in Scotland happy. The landscapes <laughs> that they choose to shoot in, I mean, they are, it's, it's beautiful landscape, but does that necessarily mean that you're being a great cinematographer, that you're doing a great job of directing by shooting the landscapes? I think the music also plays into that. And I know that that does, it's not cinema, you know, it's Cinematography, not, yeah. Yeah. But it, it's, it's a combination of all of them. And, you know, I, I mentioned that in the, in the summary that, the music, and, and I don't know if it's just me, I, I really like bagpipes. The combination of the music and when they hit, and I mean, I listened to the soundtrack for years after this movie came out, and I, I remember that. It, it was just a, a really good combination of music, scenery, and overall just, I mean, you got to think about it. These battles are, they had to probably go through quite a lot to get them to look right. No, I, I agree with all that too. I think anything of this scale is going to have some flaws, especially what you were talking about earlier when you have people like BSing on the battlefield in the background <laughs> because yeah. there's just so many. I mean, there's going to be a certain, you can't just reshoot a whole movie. I also don't think, or a whole battle scene like that of that scale. I'm sure that Mel Gibson got a ton of gray hair from this because that sort of thing can be super frustrating. So, yeah, I think there were a lot of things done right. I think some of the battle scenes were super well done. But again, you know, it, it's it's a it's a combined thing, and I just think that there's there's a lot of butt to it. Okay, and and Brian, where is where do you stand on the soundtrack? Because I do think the soundtrack's pretty awesome. Oh, agreed. Uh, I'm also a huge bagpipe fan. I like Scot Scottish and Irish music. I would say that 
Tommy's right on. Like this is one of those soundtracks that you could listen to and put it in zero context of Braveheart. Just enjoy the soundtrack. Yes. I, I do like the soundtrack. And if my only critique on it is, and perhaps this is a critique on the movie, there's not a lot of moments of warmth. And again, there's not a lot of moments of warmth in the movie for most of the middle 50% of the movie. So the, the interchanges between Mel Gibson and Sophie Marceau's character are the only moments of warmth in this movie. I mean, even as he's talking to his second hand in command, played by uh, Brendan Gleeson and uh, uh, his crazy friend, there's not a camaraderie that this movie builds into it. And so therefore the soundtrack doesn't reflect that. But I actually found myself wanting that both from the direction as well as from the soundtrack. Oh, I, I totally disagree with you on this. One of the, the parts that I like the most about this movie is the camaraderie between Mel Gibson and Brendan Gleeson. And then when they add in the third guy, Stephen of Ireland, and his his kookiness and the fact that Mel Gibson just like, I get it. It's a little vexing, but I'm glad you're on our side. Like that whole thing, <laughs> yeah. that's, it's a different yeah. kind of warmth. But man, I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of this movie. Yeah, it's my island. But it's very early in the movie. And do you not find that that warmth uh, is pulled out of the movie in the last, let's say, two-thirds of the movie so much? Well, no, they're, they're still pretty. I mean, if you take it from a movie standpoint, not a historical standpoint, they're still standing with Robert the Bruce to fight that last battle because they know that's what Mel Gibson would have wanted. Look. They were like put together in a time of need and necessity. Again, going movie, not historically. Put it put together in a time where hard times meant hard means, and when you fight with someone, that's a different kind of camaraderie. It's not just ales down at the pub. It's you know I'll fight and die for this person, and them showing up on the battlefield with the Bruce. The Bruce has the 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 cloth with the sewn on flower from, from Wallace at the end, that was all showing mutual love and respect for a man who fought for their country the way they were about to again. I'll, I'll give you one more example. Maybe I'm uh, off on this one, but like the wedding, the, the secret wedding, there's a cool ominous tone to it, both from the direction as well as from the soundtrack and this and the moonlight on the dark contrasting scenes this is not a warm moment this is probably the happiest moment that he's going to have in his entire life and i think if you contrast that by like i'm really 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 happy and then you pull it away and you show how ugly it is when you pull it away that's that's very visceral and that's really good but somehow there's like they're almost cueing you off like hey these guys this they're doing a thing that's not allowed and this isn't going to go well for them and again, I kind of prefer to be abruptly jerked out of the happy moment and pulled into this tragic part of the story early on, which motivates him and, in theory, carries him through the rest of the movie, in, in movie version. Tommy, is that a, f a fair thing to say? I don't know. I mean, the thing that I, like, can't really agree with, I guess, is, like, you, you would have, the, the reason they would have not gotten caught is because they're already secretly wedding. So I guess... In a way, I agree with the whole forcing of this isn't going to go good for them part. Okay, I think it's just me. It's a stylistic difference on on my part there. So yeah, I'm not in. I'm not into warmth. I agree that a nighttime wedding and that whole piece was, you know, it, it was cloaked in shadow because it was all done in secret. That was all foreshadowing piece, sure. But I think Russ 
part of the reason that like when you watched uh, Black Hawk Down and you weren't really into it, it there is a warrior brotherhood piece here that that you're missing uh, there might be and that's a good thing for you to pick up on that's that's a good throwback to a, a episode we did a long long time ago let's look for this uh I, there's we've talked so much about trivia we've nitpicked on the historical facts to death on this one um brian do you have any look for this moment uh my look for this moment was something i already brought up and i probably should have shouldn't have pulled the trigger on it but uh when i said that this movie had very little advisory personnel and, and very little oversight on the editing. If you go onto the IMDb page and look at goofs, it is a never-ending list of cars in a yeah. scene, jeans, <laughs> sneakers. Yeah. I mean, it's like, boom, boom, boom. I almost want to take this, the, the IMDb list and then go through the movie like Tommy had mentioned earlier and just freeze frame to find all the stuff like it's a checklist or a tic-tac-toe board. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's actually, you know, if anybody, if any of the listeners are bored, that would be a really fun thing to do. <laughs> uh, Tommy, look, do you have any look for this moments? No, that, those were the, those were the ones The basically the, the one that I like the most though, I believe it's right at the end of the battle of Sterling. And if you look in the background, it's right before William Wallace sticks his sword back into the ground, I think. But if you look in the background of the scene, these two guys go like they're going to sort each other. And then they like stop, shake hands and start shooting the shit. It's pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I'm about to look for that next time. That's like smack dab in the middle of the part I watch of this movie the most. So I'll definitely just uh, give, give that a pause. My only look for this is beyond Mel Gibson's wig is horrendous. My only other look for this is the massive wooden gate at York uh, doesn't just look heavy. They built a seven ton real wooden gate for the set on that. And when you're engaging with an older castle, they, they had to take extra caution so that you're not marring the historical castle with the new parts of the set that you're putting in there to do the movie. So there's a lot of work that goes into doing that. And so just a small detail, but there's a lot of appreciation because they shot at real places. Like they, they did shoot Donsley Castle in Ireland and they did shoot at uh, Bective Abbey in Ireland. And I mean, they used a lot of really cool locations and I'm not going to bore people to death with it because it's a really long list of really interesting locations to shoot. But I like that. I like that they found historical places, even if they were all mostly Irish. Uh, Tommy, you ready to hand out some awards with us? Some hand out some awards, huh? Yeah. Yeah, why don't you start us off, uh, MVP of Braveheart. MVP of Braveheart. Well, that one's easy. Mel Gibson, William Wallace. Okay. When you're the director and the lead actor, that that is a strong indicator of where this is going. But uh, Brian, MVP. So although her part in this movie is almost entirely fictitious outside the the fact that she was a real person, I actually like Sophie Marceau's character, uh, how she portrayed it. Uh, Her subtle ability to manipulate statescraft in this uh, was completely lost on all of her male betters as they thought of themselves in this, while she quietly orchestrated the doom of their entire kingship. That's a really good and, point. And uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about this movie, outside of the fact that she was five. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, she's a, she's a pretty lady as well. Indeed. Bond girl, too. Yeah, exactly. Bond girl. So MVP for me, I'm going to go with the bad guy on this one. Patrick McGugan, King Edward the Longshanks. 
The guy is just a villain to the core. I mean, you really hate this guy. Oh, I, yeah. I, I mean, you can't. I mean, you just want to get up off your seat, go slap him. But it's a TV yeah. screen, and you can't do that. Boo this man! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Boo, Boo that! <laughs> Boo that man! So uh, he, again, Mel Gibson, great job as a director, Oscar winner director apparently. But uh, to me. This guy evoked an emotional response out of me that nobody else in this movie did. Tommy, who's your best supporting actor? Definitely his 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 friend, the redheaded guy. Brandon Gleason. Brandon Gleason. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's there at at every turn when he, he at the very end when he gets captured, he tells him right there to his face, "Don't go. You should not go." He was right. Yeah, he was right. It it that's a trap. <laughs> that was a frustrating part of this. It was just like, yeah, you already got burned by these guys. How many times? Uh, you know, fool me once, fool me twice, fool me three times. Come on, guys. <laughs> so, yeah. in his defense, he had killed most of them at that point. Yeah, keep going, keep going on that. Uh, you know, <laughs> Brian, best supporting actor. I actually went with Gleason and O'Hara. Just being the boys, I absolutely love O'Hara's character too. I've enjoyed a lot of movies this guy's been in. Uh, he was a bad guy in the Harry Potter films. Uh, he was one of the hooligans uh, that Jack Nicholson had in The Departed, which is one of my favorite films of all time. So uh, this guy's just a fun guy in things. I'm not saying he's not a bad guy in things, but he's just one of those people that it's it's hard to not like. Nice. Yeah. And I'm going to go with Sophie Marceau for a lot of the reasons that you said. She's beautiful. She's adds some interest to the story. I kind of liked her sticking it to the king there at the end where it's just like, oh, I loved it. This child that I'm pregnant with. Yeah, this child that I'm pregnant with. It's not uh, your son's. It's it's uh, William yes. Wallace's. I, I, I was like, it has I was like, Scottish blood or something. Yes, yeah. So mm. for me, when they did that, it only took her seven years you, to give birth. There's not a lot of high points <laughs> at the end of this movie. That that to me is definitely the high point in the last third in, the, in that third act. I was like, yes. You liked it because they finally sticked it to Longshanks. I did. I, I, I as I mentioned, the guy just needs to be slapped. Just yeah. Well, he got slapped. There you go, Tommy. Who's your hidden gem? Hidden Jim's got to be the redheaded dude's dad, uh, the guy that gets shot in the, in the in the chest with the arrow, but yet still comes in and raises up the gate with the arrow stuck in his chest. He's about to get speared, and then the then the two guys come and, and take the spear down. You've got that scene, then you've got the scene. I think it was in the Battle of Sterling when he's laying on the ground after he'd gotten, he had, he killed somebody, but was laying on the ground and somebody axes his left arm. And he's like, he lets out this just horrendous yell. He's like, Rah! and then takes his sword and just jabs it in the guy. It's hilarious. But also like, awesome. Later on the in the battle, time. you see him with two hands again too. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Actually, I don't know. I, I looked pretty close on that. They have one scene where they show him not having a hand and then another scene where they show him having a hand. So, yeah, for sure, though. That's another one of those errors. James Cosmo is his name. And I, throughout this movie, for a lot of the reasons that you're saying, Tommy, I kept thinking this guy belongs in The Lord of the Rings as, as like one of Gimli's friends, like a dwarf. Because he's just gritty. Yeah. 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 Brian, hidden gym. This is going to take a little bit of explanation. Have you guys have have you guys ever been in a movie or been watching a TV show with people where they drop a joke that clearly only you got because you're the only person laughing like a maniac in a room full of people? Yes, go on. All the time. Okay. 
So I'm watching Super Troopers 2, and they the guy who plays Rabbit calls Brian Cox, or gets a phone call from Brian Cox, and he answers the phone. Hey, Uncle Argyle, I laughed so hard in the movie theater at that because he's talking about his character in Braveheart. Oh. And, and Jess is looking at me like I'm a psychopath. The entire theater <laughs> is turning and looking at me. I am in tears because it was so dang funny. And so, yeah, Hidden Jim, Brian Cox, Uncle Argyle. Brian was, like, trying to laugh harder to, like, convince others that, hey, guys, this is funny. I'll laugh harder, so maybe I, No, understand. I hurt myself. It, it was the best joke in the whole movie. I hurt myself a little bit. Wow. So for me, my hidden gem is going to be Tommy Flanagan. You're going to know him as the guy who's got the scar on his face, and he delivers that amazing line of, uh, this is the husband of the girl who was taken on her wedding night away from him. And uh, he said, this was my within my rights. And then he like slams his uh, mace down on the guy's like, or these are the rights of a husband. So these exactly yeah and that was my right I'm here to, I'm here to uh, claim the right, the right as a husband. husband so yeah he's also in Gladiator Sin City Smoke and Aces When a Stranger Calls the Remake I mean he's in a lot of things he pops up a lot of the times and he always does a solid job and uh, th- this is one of the ones that really stands out to me somehow that real scar that which is real just is so perfect for him in this good job Tommy Flanagan he uh, later dies in the movie and I'm sad uh, th- again maybe that was just the part of the movie that's like oh wow everybody's dying in this scene this, this is going in a bad direction so um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. he's actually one of my favorite characters in Sons of Anarchy yeah yeah Brian if you had to recast somebody who would it be and who would you put in their place I laughed when I wrote this down just because I knew it would probably be somewhat unpopular but I'm going Rob Roy himself Liam Neeson for Mel Gibson okay straight out swap. <laughs> going going for the bold move I'm going to join you in the bold move I'm going to go Vigo Mortensen and for Mel Gibson. Ooh. I, can you imagine Vigo's face, though, with that, that awful mullet? Oh, God, you want to talk about a terrifying individual. Can you have a butt chin and a mullet at the same time? <laughs> I, 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 that is another thing I want to recast. The hair from William Wallace. I mean, it's just, it's horrendous. <laughs> and by the way, Mel Gibson refused to grow a beard for this because... He, yeah, I mean, William Wallace, I mean, again, this Viking kind of like Stormer, this berserker character, as he was described as earlier, he had a big bushy beard, much like Brandon Gleason's character. Mel Gibson's just like, ah, no, I'm not doing that. All I'm saying is nobody else in that movie really had a mullet. Did, did William Wallace run a truck stop like before he started this whole thing? I just don't get it. The illustrations I saw of him, which again, they're illustrations. It's from a time when your guess is as good as mine with what he looked like. He did not have a poofy mullet thing on top of his head. He did have the, like these braid things, but like I guess that could have happened for the time, uh, of the place. But uh, yeah, strange, strange decisions with the hair there. Uh, Tommy, had you thought of anybody you might like to recap? Okay, okay. Since we're on the topic. Now, I don't know how old this guy would have been, but if you were to recast Mel Gibson as Aquaman, I oh. guess that that probably would have would have would have taken the cake. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Jason Momoa, Brian? No. Um, I mean, I get it from a berserker standpoint, but he's super tan to be from the Highlands of Scotland. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. We could pale him up. I don't know. Okay, that's fine. I, I don't want that to sound like a criticism. Uh, I'm not trying to criticize a, a change. This thing. This is this is your change. Uh, could have been awesome. I don't know. I mean, it was fun to watch him be a berserker in Game of Thrones. So might have been 
that could have if that was the if that was the least accurate thing in the movie we'd have a very different movie that's true (laughs) um so uh what was your best shot tommy the best shot the scene i'm thinking about is when william wallace is running on top of the mountain yeah you know what i'm talking about when he's running along and they're playing the bagpipe yeah he's 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 hacking up the nobles men you, you know, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He, he's playing. They're playing the bagpipes, and he's running on the top of the mountain. That is my favorite scene. Uh, definitely by far the most beautiful scene and meaningful. Okay. And Brian, what about you? What's your best shot? Uh, my best shot, which actually has a inaccuracy in it, but we're gonna get past that. Uh, my best best shot is is just the the sweet scene where the little girl hands him a flower over the graves of his uh, father and brother. I think that's one of those scenes that that really does add warmth. And you could actually have that scene without doing anything else with a girl later in the film, uh, just showing a you know human moment because they spend a lot of time with the English's perception that the Scottish aren't people. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. When you show something like that, you don't have to make it a prolonged thing. You can show something like that and humanize anything. Yeah, I just I, I thought that was that was a wonderful way to to start off or to start off a second part of a movie that started in blood. Okay, and again, I, I am not gonna fall sucker for like there's like these beautiful Scottish landscape countrysides that they shoot in the beginning of the movie and they're, they're plentiful. And I think that's why one best cinematography, such as like the ride where Murren goes across the Scottish countryside. They have this really nice crane shot going through the trees and how they go through the woods and cross the stream and all that stuff. But to me, the nature's doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Yes. They're choosing their angles. Well, but to me, one of the more, inspired moments that had really good lighting in there. William's father's funeral in the beginning of the movie is shot at night. There's a lot of mist in the foreground and you see the torches of the people gathering in a circle and you're looking up a hill and there's this warm light in the mist and the silhouettes of the morning villagers are around uh, William's father there. The music's good and this tone is right. It's somber. It's creepy. It's it's cold. It's It's so fitting for the moment. This to me, and like I said, I had a hard time finding other good moments like this, which is why I was kind of criticizing it and saying, I don't know that it deserved Best Cinematography for Oscars, but this, this is a good moment, and I wanted more of it. Sweet. Best scene, Tommy. Well, the best scene is by far the Battle of Sterling. I mean, you can't beat that. I agree. No, look, I'm just going to jump right in. I completely agree with Tommy. You get that pump-up speech at the beginning. If this is your army, why do they go? You know, and they're all like, no, nah, we're not going to fight. And he's like, yeah, you are. And they're all like, yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. That's oh, yeah. Get your get your blood going for sure. I'm going to say something different just for diversity's sake. And I really like the overtaking of the village of Lanark in the beginning. This is where Murren is executed and the revolt begins. That's a good one, too. I really like that. And I kind of got a mad... I, I, maybe it's because it's Mel Gibson, but I got a Mad uh, Max vibe off of this, where it's just like, okay, they're married. Okay, she's sexually assaulted. Okay, and now she's dead. And now he's mad. And now he's going on a rampage. Okay. Yeah, there is some good rampage there. Especially, I love the part, like, right when he, right at the very beginning, when he, whatever he takes, I guess it's like, Looks like some nunchucks or something. What does he hit him with when he's sitting on the horse? 
He hits that guy in the face with something. I don't even know what it is. That's a good question. I'll look that up. Uh, you guys keep going. But anyway, I'm waiting for uh, William Wallace to Road Warrior at coming out of the- Road Warrior. So if you had to change one thing, Tommy, what would it be? I would change Robert the Bruce to actually helping William Wallace in the Falkirk battle. I know that it plays a, a pivotal part about showing, you know, people backstabbing William Wallace, but it just it just killed me to see them portray the Bruce as a backstabber like that. Yeah, I guess he has a change of heart later, but it's it's a bit late for William Wallace at that point. So, yeah, that that's a downer moment for sure, a letdown. Uh, Brian, change one thing. So my change one thing, we we kind of went over again. I have a bad habit of uh, bringing my stuff up as it's relevant. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, the historical accuracy, I feel like you could have served several purposes by making this more historically accurate. I feel like they changed some stuff just for change's sake. And, and if they had just made it maybe a little bit more form-fitting, it would have been more of a compelling movie as a whole. Interesting. Yeah. And for me, my change one thing is going to be to cut down the second battle, uh, the Battle of Falkirk, where the King Edward defeats the Scots. And the politics afterwards are also really slow things down. So uh, that battle just seems to go on forever. And maybe it's because it's a losing battle, but I feel like we have to wallow in a defeat a little too long. Is that a fair statement? I can see it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they had to do the... uh, I think what takes so long is when the Irish uh, charge and then they meet in the middle. I mean, that takes... That's basically like wait for both of them to charge at each other and then they stop and they're like, ah, hey, what's going on? Yada, yada, yada. My island. (laughs) My island. Best quote of the movie, Tommy. Argyle, when he says... First, you learn to use this and points at his head. Then I'll teach you to use this and throws the sword in the air. Good one. Brian, what is your best question? I'm going to go with O'Hara on this, and I know I'm going to be dancing along the line here. So if you have your your little bleep ready, it's, uh, Lord tells me he can get me out of this mess, but he's pretty sure you're (laughs) f***. It's your fault, I thought. Uh, I'm pretty sure he says you're f***. But really, again, I've always thought oh, all these yes. years it was your fault. Maybe you were watching it on TV. I would bet you money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh wow! All these years I, I've been I've been spoofed. So my best quote of the movie is going to be William Wallace uh, when he says, "Every man dies, but not every man really lives." Yeah, that's a good one. There's a lot of them, man. Uh, you know, it's it's full of them. When I was doing the summary, I wanted to really get in there and start doing every one that I could find. But I was like, well, we'd be here forever. And again, me like hating King Edward, the part where I wanted to slap him probably the most. And then it could happen right away off the beginning was like, the problem with Scotland is it's full of Scots. I'm like, oh, yeah. Hey, we need to slap (laughs) this guy. Yeah. Yeah. The problem. There's a there's a Bill Burr stand up where he talks about when you hear stuff like this. This is why every person should be just carrying around a rag of chloroform so you can just take care of these people like immediately. Be like, <laughs> oh, potential Hitler. Nail. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. I knew I knew this guy was up to no good at that point. So anyway, Tommy, is there anything you want to plug, by the way? Oh, well, sure. Yeah. Okay. So Mississippi Aquarium is going to be opening sometime in early 2020. It's going to be really fun to walk through that thing. Okay, and now it's time for, on a five-star scale, 
Tommy, what do you give this movie? Four and a half, just because I'm biased, okay? Four and a half, and Brian? I'm going to give it three stars, and then, I know that's going to sound rough, but three stars, if you take that as a percentage, would be about the percentage of this movie that I rewatch constantly. Okay. And <laughs> I'm going to go with three and a half stars myself, and I, I, that's up a lot from where it was before. I have been going around for years being like, this movie's overrated. So I've just changed my attitude about it, giving a little more time to it. I think knowing that it's going to have a heavy ending has changed my outlook on it. When you don't know what's going to happen the first time, and I didn't because I didn't know my history very well, I kind of got to the end of it. I was like, what? That's the end? And so... <laughs> That's um, the end. Yeah. So it, it at least it's like knowing where this is going to go and that helps. Brian, will you help me pick a movie for next time? Always. So with uh, September 11th coming up, uh, we wanted to honor the emergency responders it always makes me think about that so uh this is actually a delayed episode from a long time ago we talked about doing this but there's no more fitting time than september 11th and so option one ladder 49 from 2004 a firefighter injured and trapped in a burning building has flashbacks of his life as he drifts in and out of consciousness meanwhile fellow fighter fighters led by the chief attempt to rescue him option two hellfighters the story of macho oil well firefighters and their wives and that's from 1968. And option three, backdraft from 1991. Two Chicago firefighter brothers who don't get along have to work together while a dangerous arsonist is on the loose. You're telling me Kurt Russell and a Baldwin is in the same movie? I gotta go backdraft. Not much of a spoiler there. If you might recall, it's been months ago we've told you, but we would give you backdraft. And if you're a backdraft fan, we will deliver. It's going to happen. So... Tommy, thank you so much for coming on and doing Braveheart with us. We had a lot of fun with you. I think it was great. Thanks for inviting me. I'll do another if y'all ever decide to do Beverly Hills Cop. Okay. Oh, that might that actually really might happen. I mean, I'm a I'm a fan too, so we should really think about that. And to all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Email us at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? We went to breakfast in Canada. We made a deal. If she'd stop hooking, I'd stop shooting people. Maybe we were aiming high.